Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. The CEO is the only one who has the ability to affect the organization as a whole in those three areas. Uh, It isn't that everyone else can't be enrolled in the mission of creating a vibrant culture and hiring the best uh, team members and keeping them on board and hitting the goals and the KPIs and the metrics that are important to run the business. Everyone in the company should be um, enrolled in that mission. But it is only the CEO who can show up early to the meeting and say, here's the agenda. And this agenda has to align with what we believe that culture should produce in the behaviors of people to determine the results of our numbers. And when we get people sort of on that track and we get them balanced in that way, the results that come from the organization are always increased and the energy level in the organization is really unleashed in a way that's uh, very, very positive. Welcome back. I hope your week's been awesome so far. If you haven't listened yet to my recent conversations with the author of Magnetic Stories, Gabrielle Dolan, and with sales expert Oscar Chavez, then go listen in. Check them out. But stay here and listen to today's conversation first. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Trey Taylor. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Taylor Insurance Services, the Managing Director of Trinity Blue Consulting, and Founding Partner of Ascend Partners. Trey is also managing partner at Threadneedle, a single family office with entrepreneurial roots in the financial services industry, holding investments in insurance, in financial services, commercial real estate and early stage technology companies. Trey is frequently featured as a keynote speaker. He's addressed attendees at the Human Capital Institute, the Ascend Conference and many other engagements. Trey is also author of the book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. In our conversation today, Trey talked to me about the three things that a CEO must focus on, culture, people, numbers. We talked about how to build and sustain a healthy and compelling culture. And we talked about how to share the burden of measures in the right context. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Trey Taylor.
Hi, I'm your host, Jurgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today, all the way from Valdosta, Georgia in the USA, Trey Taylor, who's the CEO of Trinity Blue and also the author of A CEO Only Does Three Things. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Trey. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Thank you, Jurgen. Good to speak with you and good to see you again. Now, Tommy Breedlove, who was our guest on episode 437 of the Innova Buzz podcast, introduced us and suggested that we have a conversation. So a big hello to Tommy. Yes, absolute uh, hero of mine. And uh, he and I are in a, uh, a death match uh, to see who can give each other the most. And so podcast introductions is one of his gives, and I very much appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And he's a, he's a great person. We had a fabulous time chatting with him too. Good guy. Yeah. Now, I'm really curious about what these three things are, but before we start talking about all that, um, what, what's the impact you're making in the world today? You know, Jurgen, what I'm trying to do uh, with this message and the consulting work that I do is to sort of rescue CEOs from themselves. Uh, Tommy <laughs> has a similar message where he's rescuing, uh, you know, C-level people from, um, you know, sort of a boring existence inside of big companies and that sort of thing. My, I'm a little... Uh, more modest on that, but um, I am a CEO. I have committed all of the CEO sins, and uh, I have in the consulting work, the growth consulting work that I do with companies, I, I began to notice and, and kept noticing uh, that CEOs didn't really know how to do their job. And it was intriguing to me as to why that was. And the reality was there's no job description for a CEO. Mm. Right. We all hold the idea that if the job, if, if the work doesn't get done, then it'll roll uphill to the CEO to do it. And um, and unfortunately, that's a very bad psychological place for CEOs to find themselves. And so I wrote the book as sort of a manifesto for CEOs to pick up and say, this is my job and this is what I'm going to do. And uh, have had wonderful feedback from my own clients who have gone through a little process that we do around that. But uh yeah, and the book has been widely uh, well received because of that as well. So um, I'm I'm happy that the three things are liberating CEOs around the world. Mm, that's great. Um, the it's interesting rescuing them from themselves. I guess uh, one of the one of the sins I see in CEOs, especially in the small business arena, is is kind of this belief or this mindset that I have to do everything myself because otherwise it doesn't get done properly. And of course, that A, limits your growth, B, um, really puts a lot of pressure on, because if you've got a small business with lots of customers, then doing everything yourself is very, very challenging. Um, so what what um, what do you see as the, first of all, that shift in mindset that needs to happen to kind of get beyond that and start to embrace the idea of, there's a few areas we need to focus on as CEOs. Yeah, it starts off with an awareness, you know, and uh, you'd, you'd be amazed by how many intake interviews I do with uh, coaching clients, CEOs, where the first 20 minutes we end up uh, in tears because mm. it is a hard <laughs> job and it's made harder by the fact that we literally don't do it well. And uh, the stress, the psychological stress that comes with that uh, is a bad thing. And so when I sort of open up and say, hey, I understand that doing everybody's job all the time to a level of perfection is psychologically uh, a stressful place to be. And secondly, is a completely impossible thing to nail. 
And when you get to that point, you know, guys that haven't cried in, you know, 15 years since they saw their favorite sports movie will really be almost in tears and say, yeah, but how do I not live like that? So the first step is the awareness that there is a place to go. Uh, And that is always an interesting sort of conversation. And then we talk a lot about, uh, well, you know, gosh, if this isn't my job, you know, why am I here? What am I being paid to do? You know, I need to find out what my job is. Okay, well, that's where we come in and let's look at what the job description for a CEO should be. Hmm. Okay, well, explain to us then what, what are those three things that a CEO needs to do? Yeah, so it's our formulation that uh, the CEO should focus on what we call the Trinity, and that Trinity is culture, people, and numbers. And, um, you know, immediately when I introduce this concept to a lot of CEOs, they push back and say, yeah, that would be great if I could do that, but I can't because I have this to-do list that's a mile long. And um, and then by the end of working with us, sort of the first uh, intake session and that sort of thing, you know, lots of people are looking at it saying, yeah, this is way better because if if I only focus on culture, people and numbers and trust my staff to do the things that they've been hired to do without me looking over their shoulder at all times, then I will either get good results from a good team or I'll get poor results from a team that may need to be upgraded and, and um, uh, trained in a better way or something of that nature. So we make pretty good strides uh, as far as that goes. And then the last comment that I'll make on that is the three, these three things are the three things because the CEO is the only one who has the ability to affect the organization as a whole in those three areas. Uh, it isn't that everyone else can't be enrolled in the mission of creating a vibrant culture and hiring the best uh, team members and keeping them on board and hitting the goals and the KPIs and the metrics that are important to run the business. Everyone in the company should be um, enrolled in that mission, but it is only the CEO who can show up early to the meeting and say, here's the agenda. And this agenda has to align with what we believe that culture should produce in the behaviors of people to determine the results of our numbers. And when we get people sort of on that track and we get them balanced in that way, the results that come from the organization are always increased and the energy level in the organization is really unleashed in a way that's uh, very, very positive. Mm, mm, that's fascinating. The, um, is, is there a specific order that people need to work on or people work with? Um, so I will say the answer is no. And yet when I look back on all of the engagements that we've done, we typically have to go to culture first hmm. because we may have a people issue and you can pretty much tell that in a business pretty quickly uh, during that intake work. But um, even if you have a, a, a poor people uh, selection mechanism or you just have the wrong team or the team is very unhappy or whatever it happens to be, usually those have cultural roots. And when we begin to tease out those roots and we begin to sort of pick up the string and follow it to see where it goes, um, we very often find that uh, cultures are largely unarticulated. They're Mm -hmm. unritualized, you know, so nobody knows what the culture is supposed to be. They don't know how to practice cultural values because the leadership doesn't provide that. And instead, people will take culture and begin to make it whatever is beneficial to an individual employee over the company as a whole. And so the CEO's job is to take the reins and arrest that trend and bring it back and say, we must have a culture that benefits the organization as a whole and then the individual. 
so that sort of collective over individual mindset is a core piece of what cultures have to be. Uh, and then you go through and say, if we have this culture, do we have the right team? Will this culture, will these values show up in the behaviors of our people? And will those behaviors produce our numbers? That's typically how the engagements go when we go through them. Mm. Although I will maintain intellectually that, uh, you know, we could start anywhere else in the process. I just can't tell you that we've ever started anywhere else in the process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one of the things that occurs to me in, in sort of reading through the book and how you outlined it is that if you haven't articulated the culture, you're not really clear about it. I mean, obviously everybody's got values and then there are company values that reflect the CEO's values, but if it's not embedded in the culture and if, if as you say, individuals are, are kind of adapting behaviour and, and the environment to suit themselves rather than the company as a whole, then then you're probably going to end up with more of those people that aren't necessarily aligned with whatever that culture is because it's not visible, it's not articulated, it's not being lived and breathed by the whole company. So That's exactly it. Yeah, exactly yeah. it. And, and, and a lot of drama, a lot of negative psychological pressure can be released when you take someone who has worked the culture to their individual advantage and you make plain to them that that isn't going to be the way going forward, you can release a lot of negativity, a lot of toxicity into the environment. And sometimes it means that person has to go find their happiness elsewhere. But mm. lots of times, if you can get two or three people converted, uh, then it becomes a safe decision for everybody to make. And what we find after the end of that first engagement, whether that be you know, three months, six months, nine months, whatever it happens to be, is that overall the health of the organization is better. And even the ones that were most skeptical of it largely become the largest, you know, sort of most vocal uh, enthusiasts for the work that has been done on the culture. And lots of times we'll take credit for it and say, I knew this for years that we needed to fix <laughs> everyone else around here, you know? So it's an interesting phenomena. It's one that we, we find in almost every client. So no one is immune uh, to having it. Uh, and so that tells me that we all need to do uh, that level of culture work. Hmm. So how do you go about, uh, if, if there's a company, let's say, that where the CEO is in this stress of doing so many things and the culture perhaps isn't clearly articulated, how do you go about kind of setting that path that we articulate the culture here and and explain to everybody the behaviours and the um well the whole environment that that you want to create and that you expect people to um, help with yeah we do a lot of thought work and a lot of sort of behind the scenes work up front identifying what the values held by the the group is these are not aspirational statements so i don't just sit down with the ceo and say what are your values hmm. and then he rattles off or she rattles off seven things and we go with it we want to see these things being practiced. We want to see them. Um, it can be aspirational because our values always are. We, we're never perfect at it. We want to be a lot better at what we do. But um, it is it is a very corrosive effect that if a CEO identifies, you know, that that we have the highest integrity in our industry and that isn't true, that becomes a very corrosive force mm. 
with employees rolling their eyes and saying, yeah, we know that's not the case. Yeah. And, and one of the best examples, and we mentioned it in the book, of course, is uh, Enron. So Enron mm -hmm. had a beautiful mission statement that touted their integrity and all of that sort of thing. And it was engraved in gold letters on the marble wall of the lobby. And then you take, you know, two turns into the office pool and everyone's at each other's throats. And it was all about uh, who can produce the most um, money based on a lie you know, then the next guy can and that sort of thing. So it's a corrosive effect when you say things that you want to be true, but aren't willing to work to make them true. So that's the first thing we do is sort of a cultural values inventory. Then we take those inventory uh, statements, which we, we identify as values, and we put some um, some legs under them. We have some discussions around what, what exactly does this mean uh, to the group? How is it practiced? And tell me some stories about how you've seen them be practiced. And then we take those stories um, and we try to ritualize those stories so that the stories themselves become part of the mythology of the company. So, so a new person coming in doesn't say, what does it mean to have integrity in this environment? They, they hear instead that one time William had this client where the easy answer was to do this, the hard answer and the right answer was to do this, and he did this. Because we learn as humans from storytelling and then the action that we have to take individually is to say, where do I see myself in that story? Can I see myself behaving in that way? Because a culture shows up in the behaviors of your people. If you have a toxic culture, if you have a culture that is sort of lukewarm or milk toast, that's what's going to show up in the behaviors of the people. So we go back to the bush itself and sort of groom and cultivate that that bush so that what grows out of that, the fruit that it produces is inside the behaviors of the people. And that carries the momentum of the uh, cultural work forward. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you mentioned a story because I was chatting with Gabriel Dolan, who's the author of Magnetic Stories on a recent podcast. It was one or two episodes ago, in fact. Um, and she has a, has a story around how to use storytelling in culture and it was um the i don't know whether this was a ceo or a, a senior executive where they were um, working with her team and she had told this story about her father who was a, a competitive swimmer and he was in the trials to get into the national team and this was back in the 60s before they had you know high-tech detection stuff and he swam the first lap was way out in front of everybody um, just misjudged the turn the tumble turn and didn't touch the wall and um, you know so he had a choice in that very moment keep going nobody would have noticed or go back and touch the wall so he went back and touched the wall as a result lost a lot of time didn't win the race in fact came last and um and didn't make the national team and he never never ended up getting on the national team so it was a pretty uh consequential choice that he made but he decided to well do the right thing basically so she tells that story to highlight the value story. that that we do the right thing here you know and then and it got embedded in the culture so much so that every so often when there's a decision to be made and there's there's a debate around whether we do a or b um it uh somebody will point out uh what's our touch the wall moment oh really beautiful i love it that's exactly what we're looking for in yeah. the uh, stories uh that we find for sure we love it when um 
when the values uh, are well articulated. We love it when the stories are good, but we love it when they work themselves into um, the culture in that way. And in my own company, we uh, one of my uh, greatest uh, um, partners in my company is a man named William. And uh, it, William's name is often used as a verb. So when you finish the work and you're going to do an extra 10%, right? You're going to do more than what was required. Uh, people say, I put the William to it or I William <laughs> or something like that. And you, you can't buy that, right? I, that's yeah. just the nature of a healthy culture who really says, this is how we want to behave. This is our identity is who we want to be as a group. And I, I smile ear to hear when I hear those kinds of stories. Yeah. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more then about the people side of it and, and particularly, you know, how do you, um, if if you start to articulate that culture, how do you get people on board? How do you start to hire people when you do new hires that are a cultural fit? Because I think that's probably the easiest one rather than to try and force fit people into a culture that maybe uh, they need to make changes. Uh, the probably better way is when you first hire to make sure that the culture is really articulated well and the person is a cultural fit. Yeah, exactly right. And um, uh, we articulate a very different uh, sort of interview scheme uh, for people to follow because it's it's our belief that the CEO only does three things and selecting people who live inside the culture and can produce the numbers is is one of them. And so we love for the CEO to be very intimately uh, involved in the hiring process, not the only person involved in it. But uh, I always like to see the CEO do the first real sort of interview, not the are you a fit for what we're looking for in the background check and that sort of thing, but really that first conversation. And, and when we have that conversation, we have four conversations. The, the first is cultural fit. The second is uh, capability. The third is compensation. And the fourth is commitment. And so, you know, you can you can have all of those conversations in, in one or two interviews. No problem. Uh, we have had them in eight interviews in the past as well uh, as we hired for a senior management uh, team member. So it doesn't matter, you know, that there not have to be discrete interview steps, but we want mm. four separate conversations. And number one, I want uh, to be had by the CEO. I want the CEO to come to that interview, the cultural interview, and say, look, it doesn't matter what the job is, the job description you know, can change and will change depending on your success with the company over time and market conditions and other staffing needs and that sort of thing. We just have to be honest about that. More importantly, uh, we can train anyone to do any task that we need done for the sake of the business, right? It's an intellectual exercise. We talk to smart people. We live in educated areas, you know, that sort of thing. It isn't hard for us to train people. But what we can't and won't ask people to do is adopt a set of values that are foreign to the way that they see themselves. And so with that in mind, I just want to tell you four quick stories of why you may not like working here. And so that sounds like a little bit of a gimmick, but the entire idea here is to put all of the, um, the pressure that comes from an interview, which is, I got to get the job, I got to get the job, to sort of put the candidate back and say, relax a bit and see if you can see yourself here. Because you could interview the best in the world and get the job and still be miserable. And then that makes me miserable because then I'll have to fire you and all this sort of thing. So we have that encapsulated conversation. We teach CEOs how to uh, pull out three or four of the values and really have those 
um, story-based discussions. And then here's the trick, and everyone gets uncomfortable with this, but it is absolutely beautiful when it works well. Um, then we send the candidate away. And we say, if you are interested in continuing the conversation with us, then your homework is to reach back out to us within 48 hours or whatever the time frame is with an understanding that you see yourself in the stories that we were able to tell you about the culture that we have here. 75% of candidates will return. And the 25% that leave are the biggest problems that you've avoided as a CEO <laughs> in the future. You know, yeah. not bad people. And we don't, we don't mean mm. to say that and suggest it even a bit, just not, just not. on the same page mm. as where we're trying to take it. So then we move forward from the cultural interview and then, you know, uh, maybe the peer or the hiring manager, or maybe the CEO can talk about the capabilities. This is what it takes to be successful in the position. And only after we've established those two things, will we talk about compensation. So if mm. I get a check mark that you're a good cultural fit and you sort of hold the same values as the rest of the team, if I get a check mark that uh, that you can do the job and you've demonstrated history and we, you know, we've challenged you a bit with this and that sort of thing, then we will talk about how that position creates value for the organization and what percentage of that value should you receive in compensation. After all of that is done, we will rehearse again. These are the commitments. We want to extend the job to you. These are the commitments that we want to make to you. And these are the commitments we want you to make to us. We very often love to see other people in that interview with them, spouses, uh, fiancés, whatever it happens to be, um, hmm. so that those commitments are made publicly in such a way that, uh, that we now have an extra accountability vehicle there. And uh, that's a real uncomfortable place for some people to get. <laughs> but absolutely, I mean, I have interviewed with grandparents before, um, mm. with parents, that's an uncomfortable one. Uh, so lots of spouses, of course, always like to do that. And we have a small business and so we, we can afford to do that. But um, just that extra level of commitment and accountability uh, will go a long way to making people feel quite welcome um, in the organization. So that's the interview process. That's how we go about selecting people who fit the culture. That's uh, brilliant. I love it. Um, and also, I mean, to me, there's there's some cultural aspects there. You haven't described the culture. You haven't told those stories. But I get a sense of that, you know, there's a value of the person as a person. There's a value of importance. I mean, clearly, there's the importance that you place on cultural fit above everything else. And also the value that you care about people and and their um, important connections, their family, whatever that might be, you know, the people that they then bring along to that final. Because yeah, those people are, interview. they're in the relationship, whether we know mm. they're in the relationship or not. Yeah. Um, just a quick vignette on that. I had a, uh, a salesperson that I was hiring. And we had gone in great depth on how the compensation is a variable compensation plan. Of course it is. And, uh, you know, so the more you sell, the more you make. And there are potentially some times when you won't make the money that you wanted to because the sale didn't come through. No surprise to you, of course. But um, we, we had the spouse of that person come in the final interview to accept the job. And they accepted it. They were very happy. He was quite successful over the next six, nine months, whatever. And I get a call. And his numbers had flattened out. And I get a call from his wife and he says, remember when you asked him to do 
you know, his level best five days a week and all of these kinds of things and have this many appointments and all of that. And I said, yeah. And she said, he goes, plays golf every day at three o'clock. She totally ratted him out. Right. <laughs> which, I, which was not the point like to create marital <laughs> friction at all, but it was an accountability point. And she was able to sort of bring that conversation back to the table where we could have a, a, an accountability point with him. She never would have known to do that if she wasn't present for the commitments that I made to he and his family. And mm. she knew that he was not keeping up his end of commitments. So very interesting dynamic. I, it, it doesn't happen all the time, but uh, at least it happened that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, an interesting story. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I can imagine the conversations that must have happened leading up to <laughs> to that point. <laughs> you know, well, right they're, they're, st you're they're not still married. Me, so. <laughs> <laughs> they're still married to this day, and they're still very successful. So we're we we think we avoided a long term problem there. Yeah. All right. Well, um, one of the things that you talk about a bit in the book is kind of nurturing talent. So you bring somebody on, they're a real good cultural fit there. They've got the competency to do the job that they're being hired for. But then there's this idea, and I, I've always been really strong in my sort of corporate career way back. <laughs> and and it was something that you know, wasn't really common in those days of looking for opportunities for people to grow and thinking forward for each individual. So how do you kind of nurture talent in that, bearing in mind that you know, maybe some of the small companies might not have um, a, an obvious career path for somebody, like being promoted to the next level or uh, moving from one department to another to challenge them and, and give them opportunities to try new things? Um, and also the other question, well, I'll come back to this next question. So let's deal with that one. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really great question. And it, it comes back to the idea of being candid upfront. So there are times when we will hire someone in the organization and I'll be very clear that, you know, you're coming in at really the highest level that we're ever going to have for you. And unless mm -hmm. you want your name on the door here and, you know, that comes with a, a price of check that I'll gladly cash, you know, then we, we've, we've got to figure out if that's going to be an okay place for you. And we career path everyone in the organization. Now, what that doesn't mean is that I go to them and say, next year, you're going to have this job. And the year after that, you're going to have mm. this job. And that sort of thing. Quite the opposite. We, we career path people by saying, what is it that you want to achieve in your professional life and your personal life so that your identity as a happy and healthy human is supported? How can we help on that? And we graduate people from our organization over three or four years very often. And you would think, oh, well, I don't want to grow up a competitor and send them out the door. Well, mm -hmm. I, I agree, and I don't want to do that either. And so we have, obviously, legal protections around uh, that situation. But very often we take people and grow them up to a level of competency where they are going to benefit another organization and be compensated accordingly far more than they can in my organization. And in reality, that was probably going to happen anyway. I probably, with the system that we've got about really taking care of people on career pathing, probably move them through a little faster than other organizations. Um, if I do that, I get the most value in the shortest period of time that I can. Hmm. And then I do it over and over again. Now, I don't mean to describe, you know, my office with a revolving door in the front, because that's not the case by any means. As a matter of fact, most of my people have been with us for 20 years or more. 
So uh, it isn't that case at all. But career pathing, sometimes you just have to be open to it. Sometimes means Hmm. that the path doesn't end in your office. You know, it ends somewhere else. And if you really, truly care about people and, and as individuals, and you truly know what goals they're trying to achieve and who they're trying to become, then you have to be okay with that. And you, you know, you have to also take the hard knocks of sometimes it's really hard to recruit people. I think the entire world's in that boat right now. Um, uh, but the people that we are hiring are still just as good as anybody or better in some cases than people we've had in the past as well. So, um, it's a sloppy answer. It's not a clean and beautiful answer. Like, Hey, don't worry about it. If you hire somebody in career path and they'll stay with you forever. That isn't the answer. And it shouldn't be the answer that CEOs are seeking. That's a poverty mentality that we can't replace good people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of gold in that, um, particularly, you know, if people understand you really care about them as individuals and, and their success, and that goes beyond just working for you, then there's, you know, there's a sense of even if they then leave because there's a, a, a new opportunity that they wouldn't have within your company, they're still really um, connected and, and generally would be grateful for having had the opportunity to develop their skills to that point that they can take that new opportunity. Is that Very a saying rarely. that I'm... No, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, there's a saying I'm reminded of. Um, Tom O'Toole is is a f- well-known speaker here. He he started up a bakery in regional Victoria, and um, he's uh, quite a character. He gets on stage and he has this very laconic humour. And one of the things he says, um, he talks about you know how important people are, and he says, "I'm often asked, Tom, what you know." He talks about the importance of training, and he says, "I'm often asked, Tom." what if you train people and they leave? And my answer is, what if I don't train them and they stay? And they stay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a perfect conception of uh, exactly how most of us really do run the business world. And then who who does the work that we don't train them to do? Right back to the (laughs) CEO creating a problem in the first place, you know? Exactly, Uh, yeah. most, Most CEOs end up as petty tyrants of tiny kingdoms. And they don't have to be. Right. But they 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 sort of develop a fear based response. And look, again, I am not preaching anything that I have not fully sinned and been forgiven for. Okay, Mm -hmm. I have committed every executive sin. And it used to be for me that the smaller the organization, uh, the better, because I could control more and be involved in more Mm -hmm. detail and that sort of thing. And I and my clients go through it as well. I see it all the time. But it just is a miserable way to live. So Tom O'Toole is exactly correct that we should definitely try to grow our people a lot more than we do. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit of it, and it's almost quantifiable, if you have a really engaged employee, and let's say you only keep that team member three years or five years, versus having one that's 25 or 35 percent engaged and you keep them for 10 years, you can quantify the value capture for the organization you know, at three to four to five X over uh, losing that person. And um, and it's an important thing. Now, having said all that, I'm not trying to get people in the door and then get them out the back door yeah, within yeah. a certain period of time. I believe and really advocate and do it myself. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm just sitting here at my desk and here's a gift card. Uh, I sent huge tomahawk steaks, uh, sort of the size of your head, 
to all of my uh, uh, management team because they really are going through it right now with some business issues that they are handling. They're doing a beautiful job and they have no idea, but a couple of hundred dollars worth of steaks will arrive at the house today. And uh, maybe in the weekend, they can have a beautiful steak dinner with their family and that sort of thing. And the card that went out with it was addressed to the whole family. It was addressed to say, thanks for sharing your loved one with us. And you'll never know the impact that his work has on the lives of thousands of people. There's no way we can ever show you that. So have a steak instead. And there's a point of conversation, you know, that dad sort of rubs his neck and looks embarrassed and that sort of thing. But his kids know, his kids know that the work that he's doing is valued by somebody. And that's not something that I think CEOs think about. It's a little bit mushy and uncomfortable and that sort of thing. So I'm a big believer in gifting, I'm a big believer in nurturing uh, in that way. We have another client whose um, son is a really good baseball player at the age of nine. So good that he's going to go to the Little League uh, World Series. I didn't know there was a thing, but there is, and it's the most mm-hmm. charming thing you've ever seen. And uh, uh, the kids are walking around chewing bubblegum and spitting and that sort of thing. Just, you know, just so funny. Um, and he made sure to go to three or four of that kid's Little League games, nine-year-old kid playing baseball games, because he knew it was important to his employees. Didn't announce his presence, didn't do any, you know, like, look at me, here I am to do. Nope. It was all about loving who she loved. And it was um, it was emotionally affecting for the entire organization. And they look at the boss and they say, oh, we support each other. That happens to be one of our core values. I see him living it. And it hmm. comes full circle. Yeah. So I, I'm a big believer that love is a verb. It's something that you do. And uh, the CEO has to be super creative, but it also is so energizing and so exciting when you get it right yeah beautiful stories i love them yeah all right um one of the things we haven't talked about numbers but one of the other things um, i might leave that for this episode one of the things i wanted to explore you tell a story about mrs brownlee and uh, the lesson you had from her in school uh, one of your teachers and and it was about um you know i'm reminded i i um, I'm in Toastmasters and there's a, a well-known speech in Toastmasters where the guy, the speech title is, I see something in you. And and he talks about his own personal journey, but he talks about mentors and he uses the I see something in your, uh, as, as the mentors who've kind of said, you know, we want to help you. Um, and... It, that was kind of what I was reminded of with this story of Mrs. Brownlee, who had this ability of, of seeing something in people. So tell us the story and, and what the lessons were and how, to, how you apply that today. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm often asked, okay, how do I become a good CEO? And the obvious answer, as you will see, is read my book, of course, you know, yeah. so <laughs> we, we, we will plug in the book that way. But, uh, you know, people also say, well, what makes a great CEO different from a good CEO? And my sixth grade algebra teacher was not the uh, uh, the great CEO of the world or anything mm. of that nature. But but the lessons that she taught me, I see in the great CEOs and uh, uh, and have been privileged to observe some of them in action. And and it comes down to this: great CEOs, great leaders of any stripe have have a, a dual ability uh, to call out an identity and a vision that we have hidden inside of us. 
And the first way that they do that is to train their eyes, to get the right prescription, if you will, to precept those gifts. So you have to really make a study of watching other people and seeing where their talents lie. Because most of us labor without ever being praised for the things that we do really well. We will constantly be corrected and reminded of the things that we may leave short. So a great leader finds what you do well and really focuses on that far more than correcting anything that you don't do. So we believe that that's precepting. It's seeing the gift before the person can see it in their own selves. Well, it's not enough just to see the gift. You have to also call it out. And we call that process evocation. It comes from the Latin ex voca, to call from within. And so Mrs. Brownlee and many other great uh, leaders would see a gift in someone and then call that gift out in a praiseworthy manner and to say, hey, you have this gift and you should be using it. And if you do, then your life is going to be really wonderful. So my own little story when Mrs. Brownlee was uh, she was a tough old bird. Um, <laughs> she was 800 years old when I first met her. I swear. <laughs> Uh, she wore these polyester suits that you could sort of shoot bullets at, you know, and it wouldn't hurt her at all. And she was ramrod straight and very much a toe the line kind of person. But she had a um, she had a loving side to her. She you could tell in a heartbeat that she wanted the best for the kids in the class and in the school. She was the headmistress of the school as well. And uh, she, I don't know if you have this in in Australia, but we have homework monitors in the states. So you you choose a kid to police the other kids as to whether they did the homework or not. And it's a, I have to tell you, it's a really glamorous position, you know, to have. And uh, Mrs. Brownlee chose me to have that position. And I just thought, oh, no. And so I had to go around every day and check someone. Did, did you do the homework? And then I had to turn the list in. And there were repercussions, of course, if you didn't do the homework. And one of the repercussions was that you got a voluntary, an involuntary study hall at the end of the week. It was detention, you know, basically. And she would go back over the lessons and that sort of thing. It was really miserable. Um, the problem was that, you know, high school sports, at least in the States are Friday afternoons, largely sometimes Saturday, but Friday afternoons. And so if you were stuck in detention, that meant you weren't playing in the championship or the team sport of the week or what have you. And, uh, there was a time when I went through and I had to mark off the center for the basketball team because he didn't do his homework. And that meant he missed the game on Friday. And I got a lot of peer pressure around that, as you can imagine. I was called names about it and that sort of thing. And then I turned in the, the list to Mrs. Brownlee. I went back to her office later and I said, look, I quit. I want out. There's no benefit to this whatsoever. It's not like I'm getting paid or get good grades or anything. I don't want to do this. And look at what I'm having to, to take over here. Look at the abuse that I'm getting. You know? And she said, uh, do you know why I chose you to do this, Mr. Taylor? And I said, no, ma'am, and I, I, don't, I don't know why anybody would choose to do this. And she said, um, I see in you the ability to discern right and wrong. She precepted that. Hmm. And if you do that and you really use it to your benefit for the rest of your life, you're going to be a wonderfully successful person, but a person that deserves your success. And then she just looked down at her work and kept on working. And I didn't know if I had quit or not quit or what happened. <laughs> you know, I had no idea. That stayed with me for the rest of my life up until the present day. I still get goosebumps when I talk about it because Mrs. Brownlee looked into somebody who had no identity of his, of his own at that age. I just wanted to be liked and, and, and you know, fit in with the peer group. That's all that's important to a 14-year-old boy. 
Um, but she showed me that there was something different and valuable inside of me. And pulling that out of me has become the largest part of my identity, even to this day. So I, I get um, very focused on making sure that anything that I touch does the right thing, first and foremost. Integrity is, is the foremost proposition there, largely because she called that out of me and, uh, and, and showed it to me and became something that I wanted to live up to. And that's what great leaders do. They, they transform us from the inside into the people that we really are trying to become, but may not become if we don't have that hand up. Hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. All right. Well, maybe we'll touch quickly on on the numbers thing because that is the third thing, and we've only spoken two. Can't leave it off. A lot of, lot of time on the two. So um, clearly, you know, this is about measuring performance and and getting indicators as to you know are we on track or do we need to make changes what what are the important things to measure yeah so i think every business knows the important things to measure and every business has different metrics that are important so in the food business sort of the you know the cost of food is a very important thing and maybe portion size and maybe how quickly you you know you you serve a guest and get them out the door so another guest can be served I, I never get into an organization where they can't figure out what their metrics are, right? Hmm. Um, more importantly, though, is, as far as our process goes, is teaching CEOs how to share the burden of knowledge. So knowing those things and knowing the import of those metrics, how important they are for the history and the health of the business, is something that most CEOs are never transparent about, and they never share with great context with people in the organization. And so the primary mission for num a numbers-based CEO is not to hit the numbers, but to share those numbers and their context with everyone who will listen. And because as soon as you do that, you give clarity as to purpose, and people begin to enroll themselves in the mission of achieving those goals. And we have hundreds of stories of, of CEOs you know, kicking and screaming and not wanting to be transparent about numbers. Uh, and then finally having a tiny breakthrough and the breakthrough brings uh, great results. And so then they you know, really want to be transparent with the numbers so that everybody is owning it uh, on their own. And it's sort of, a, you know, all, I have one <laughs> I have one client who said uh, I was miserable until I shared the misery and then no one is miserable <laughs> now. You know, so uh, it's a heavy when a heavy load is shared amongst many shoulders, it makes for light work. And uh, that's what we believe to be the case for transparency in numbers. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting take. And of course, it comes back to culture and people. If you know, you've you've got a really strong culture and great people in that culture, then the the I mean, there's a sense of ownership that comes from that, isn't there? And if the CEO then shares, hey, we're in this place that might not be as attractive as what I like and I'm worried about it, well, everybody will take a level of ownership and say, well, what can we do to, to fix whatever the problems are? That's exactly right. But you can't ask people to fix a problem that they don't know is a problem. They don't know hmm. the context of the problem. And most CEOs go to work with the idea that I am the problem solver. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's an okay proposition to hold, I suppose, but it's a uh, self-defeating proposition because there will come problems uh, that we can't handle single-handedly, and we need to enroll our teams in helping us do that. 
and our teams feel um, uh, so much more engaged with the work of the organization when they have some input into the solution of problems. Um, and it's, it's a tremendous thing. We also advocate, I think you know this, uh, for a, um, a sort of a compensation philosophy that says you should capture a portion of the value that you create for the business. So it will never work that if you go in and say, I make, uh, you know, $20 million a year as salary of the CEO, and I need you to find cost savings of a, a million dollars mm. so that I can make 21 million. That's never going to work if you don't share the rewards uh, that people have helped you to create. Um, and you can do that in multiple ways, but you know, that's a, that's the second pillar of numbers for me. So transparency, but also sharing of the benefits. So if you share the misery you have to share the benefits too. Yeah. 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 And I think that comes back to, again, this culture, uh, or the philosophy of caring for people as humans. Um, because often there's, um, okay, there's going to be no bonus this year because, I mean, this happens, I see this happen in large banks or something. I know that, you know, from people that work there that I know personally, uh, there's no bonus this year because the poor performance hasn't been what was expected. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, there's this announcement, oh, the CEO's just got a $10 million bonus. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. They, uh, and then they... And, and then I wonder feel? why the shareholders get upset in the next general meeting. Exactly right. Uh, I had a job one time where I was hired, uh, uh, sort of a mid-level position. I was under uh, overhired for the position, I think. So I came in and I, I, I fixed a deal that put $9 million to the bottom line. My annual bonus was, I don't know, $15,000 or something like that. And I didn't get the bonus at the end of the year because the company as a whole didn't hit its goals. Yeah. And so there were no bonuses except the top three guys got their bonus. <laughs> and the, fifth, the little 15000 it's a lot of money to me at that stage mm. in life. And, uh, and I desperately needed the money. And I had done way more of the work than was necessary to get. And, you know, it was it was such a mismatch and it was a terrible culture anyway, but it was such a mismatch in culture. And I made my mind up immediately that I was never going to work that hard again for the organization. And I started doing all kinds of other things and eventually left for cultural reasons like that. If that happened to me, it happened to every person that we've ever met, you know, so we yeah. absolutely have to get those those two things in balance, transparency, context and uh, sort of a fairness and compensation of participation when it comes to numbers. Hmm. Great. All right. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. I think we've touched on, on the three things and sort of got a focus. There's obviously a lot to that. So I certainly encourage people to check out Trey's book. The CEO does only three things. I think it's only three things, the title. Um, yes. and, and read more about the stories, examples in that and, and learn more. I think it's a good point now, though, to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. It's five questions that I ask of every guest. And the idea is that it gives the listener today something to take away that's actionable, and hopefully they'll do something awesome as a result. So you ready? Great. I'm ready. What, what do you think the number one thing is anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I think to be more innovative, you have to um, um, set aside time and, and, and sort of commitment to study new things that are on the way. Innovation very often comes when we take um, uh, something positive going on in a different 
realm of the world and bring it into the realm that we control. So, for example, uh, I don't know anything about the blockchain uh, and crypto and all of that sort of thing. So uh, I made a task for myself in uh, June of this year to read 10 white papers for the blockchain. You can't imagine a drier subject matter uh, to do. But I wanted to do that as a consequence of that. In August, so we're in August now, uh, this month, we've had very energizing and innovative discussions on how we might tokenize something in one of the businesses that we own. That conversation never would have happened if I hadn't have spent that mental energy of just saying, this is something I don't know anything about, and I need to know something about it. So I think we should study things that we don't know, and then innovation will by, na by nature flow from that. Uh, when the opportunity presents itself. Mm, mm, that's great. I love that suggestion. And often I look at different areas and I think, oh, there's, there's something that, that I could take from that. Now, of course, in the spirit of the CEO only doing three things, that doesn't mean you become an expert in that area, right? So when, when it gets Absolutely to not. seriously implementing something from that know-how, that's where you um, go find somebody who has the know-how and is a good cultural fit. That, that's exactly right. And so one of our cultural values is that we respect innovation. And we, we phrase that as uh, to be intrepid, uh, to take a risk and that sort of thing. And so the risk is we're going to spend a little money to figure out if there's a business behind this. To do that, of course, we'll hire uh, mm. a subject matter expert on that. So we'll put that into the, the team goals. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Uh, I think the best thing uh, that I ever do is to go to my sales team and ask them what customers want to purchase. Hmm. And then we back into what that product design looks like. That's um, it's an old school way to sort of solve a problem. But it seems to me that the world has gotten so far outside of the idea that we should probably ask what people want to buy before designing and trying to sell things. Um, uh, not to say that, um, that we can't guess what people might find attractive at a later date. And that's a big piece of what innovation should be. Um, uh, the famous quote from Henry Ford, of course, is if I had asked my customers what they wanted to buy, they would want a faster horse. Uh, but I think the opposite is sort of also true that your customers really are trying to solve problems for themselves. And your job in sales is to help them do that. And to do that, you, not, you need to have the most um, you know, sort of a sharpest solution for that. And that's how we do our internal innovation uh, product development process. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's great advice. I think the fundamentals sometimes, because we've got all these technological tools today, people forget about the fundamentals. And really, you know, if you're developing a product, you need to have somebody that wants that product in order to have it sell. And, and so that as a starting point but i think the you know what i like about the idea of that story henry ford you know if i had have asked people they would have said i want a faster horse i mean taking that to its next step is chunking that up is is the skill that i think real entrepreneurs have to say well what do they mean by a faster horse well they want to get from a to b faster exactly for yeah. example and and a faster horse will only get you so far, but if I have a motorized vehicle, it's going to change that whole environment. So I think that's that's kind of the next step of that uh, innovation 
idea. Completely agree. Yeah, that curve of uh, of the entrepreneur being able to sort of abstract up a level where a customer can't imagine a world where they're not stuck, you know, riding and feeding a slow horse. Mm. Uh, that's definitely and and you see that to be the huge innovation curve moment uh, in industries all over the place. Hmm. Great. All right. Do you have a favorite resource you use most often? Um, is it okay if I say uh, my executive assistant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. I'm glad. If I'm honest, I'd have to say that's that's mine too. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I met. Uh, actually, I, I should say. I hired Jillian, who's my executive assistant, six years ago. Uh, we've never met. I don't, I don't even really know where she lives, except I know that she's an English lady who lives in Virginia. Uh, I hired her because I had embarrassed myself uh, two or three times over scheduling, not understanding the details of an event or something of that nature. And I finally had to, I, I was so embarrassed the last time I did it, I had to have a mirror conversation with myself to say, you can't do this. You don't have that part of the brain that makes this work. And so you need to go find that. So I went on Upwork and I I, uh, <laughs> I interviewed 30 people on Upwork. Jillian was the first one that I interviewed. That was luck of the draw. And I didn't like anybody else as much as I liked her. So I hired her. And she, as soon as I hired her, she says, okay, now we need to get one thing straight. You work for me. And what I mean by that is when I tell you to be somewhere, you be that place and, and I will make sure that you're prepared and ready to go. It's been the best relationship in six years. I was walking through my kitchen one day and my wife said, hold on, I have to take this call. It's with Jillian. And I said, what are you talking to Jillian for? She says, we have a meeting every two weeks. Very proactive, all of that. Last little thing there, she asked me two or three days into working with me, what would the ideal day look like for you? And flippantly, I said, I I would, you know, get in at 9.30, I would have a two-hour lunch at noon, and then I would go home at 4.30. And I have lived that life for six years because she organizes the calendar in such a way that allows me to do that. It allows me to, to have more meetings, more quality meetings, to show up more prepared instead of cramming 18 meetings into a day and not remembering what I committed to. Uh, she organizes the schedule in a much more productive way. She did a time study for me last year. And the first year that I hired her, we had X amount of meetings kept. It was 800% increase uh, by last year. So over four years, we increased basically 100% a year on what we were able to accomplish. And uh, I could not do it without her. And she's the one that I fully, uh, you know, <laughs> when I wake up in a cold sweat, it's a nightmare that she decided to go be a hula dancer or something instead of work as my... <laughs> EA uh, and uh, ab absolutely love her. And she's, uh, you know, she's very incorporated into our culture. And um, everyone knows that uh, if you really want Trey to pay attention to something, Jillian will give you the time to do it. And it's a great gift. She's my resource. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's, that's some great stories here. Okay. Uh, what's the best way to keep a client on track? Uh, I think uh, we have a belief that uh, over communicating what we call conditions of satisfaction. So if a client says uh, that they want to achieve one thing, then a, a relatively constant flow of information of how we are achieving that one thing is the thing that we think sets us apart from other sort of service delivery companies. And so what I really mean by that is to say, hey, this is what you want. I'm going to do that. And I want you to remember on a frequent basis because I'm telling you uh, this is where we're trying to get to. 
at your direction. Um, often clients will pull off and go uh, a different way or change their mind in the in the space of the engagement. We have that all the time, mission creep. Uh, and it can be okay if you have the right conversation around it. But um, mm -hmm. we very often have to pull clients back and say, that's not what we signed up for or agreed to. So here's what we did sign up for and agree to. Let's continue working on this. Or maybe we have to end an engagement. We've never had to do that. But I do have clients who are consultants who have have done that. Had fire clients over that issue. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like the conditions of satisfaction. And um, yeah, so it is, it is a of mental course. model jargon. Mm. I'm telling you, it's a mental model that. Uh, when I learned, I learned it from uh, Jeff Hazlett, who's the former uh, chief marketing officer of Kodak. And uh, Jeff very rarely has conversations with clients where he doesn't literally write out conditions of satisfaction and then hand it to the client at the end of the call and say, I've got it. Now you've got it. Now we know really what we're working on. And if we do these things, you've already said that you're going to be satisfied. It's a great tool. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the regular communication is a real key. Yeah. Okay. What's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Live their values. So it isn't enough to know them. It isn't enough to feel them. It isn't enough to identify with them, right? If other people who know you don't know what your values are without you ever telling them, then uh, you probably should re-examine on how, how closely you hold those values. So uh, if you think about people in your own life, the real differentiation that you have, I mean, you probably know 100 stockbrokers, 100 estate agents, 100 accountants. Uh, you, you have your own team assembled because uh, the person that you most like lives the values closest to what you think uh, should be true in the world. And that's how we select people. So I think it's just a strategic differentiator when we very actively live our values. Hmm. Yeah, and and you know we've been talking a lot about values in the context of the CEO um, building a culture in an organisation, and and one of the key things there I think is that when people feel as though they're a good cultural fit and the values are aligned, they they're happy generally. Um, exactly. Whereas if the opposite is true, if they're unhappy, and that's why we're attracted to people that have similar values. That's right. Hmm. All right. Well, this has been fabulous, Trey. Now, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of the book, and also maybe even get in touch and say thanks for what you've shared today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my personal site is uh, trey-taylor.com. Uh, my consulting business is trinity-blue.com. Uh, the book is a bestseller on Amazon, so uh, easy to find it uh, there. And there's a book link page as well on the uh, uh, a CEO only does three things.com. So if somebody wanted to check that out, they could do it there as well. Uh, and then if they want to stay in touch uh, with sort of random thoughts throughout the week on any of these topics, we have a, a newsletter, a Substack newsletter that goes out and it's under plantyourflag.live. And, uh, you know, three, four, five bullet points a week uh, to come out and say, here's something interesting going on in the sp space of leadership thinking or, uh, you know, securities markets or, you know, whatever happens to be the topic of interest for the week. And we have about uh, 10,000 people that get that, that newsletter each week. And we get a lot of thumbs up for that. So plantyourflag.live is the uh, newsletter link there. Excellent. Well, we'll have links in the show notes to all of those places so people can click through and check them out. Excellent. Do you have some parting advice for our listener as we wrap this up, Trey? 
you know, I think the advice is this. Uh, if we know what it takes to be a good leader uh, and a great leader, like we talked about with my uh, algebra teacher, you know, where you yeah. precept and evoke uh, gifts in people, what's stopping us from doing that today? Uh, hmm. the, the barista at your local coffee shop uh, has something inside of her that she needs called out. Who's going to do it if it's not you? Um, you can't leave those things to chance. And so maybe you have an uncomfortable moment where you say, I think you're really good at X, Y, Z, and you should probably do that for a living or something of that nature. These blessings that we can give to each other by noticing the strengths in each other, it's something that we can do tomorrow. And uh, I can't tell you how many wonderful in engagements and wonderful interactions with wonderful people that I've had just because I'll compliment them on what they're doing uh, and encourage them along the way. Life can be hard. It can be increasingly hard if it's all Facebook in your face all the time and you kind of forget that uh, real people are out there. So I think that's a good mission for us to take on. Yeah, I love it. And, uh, you know, we're usually pretty quick. I think we touched on it early in the conversation, pretty quick to criticize, but um, unfortunately slow and um, not as often do we praise people or, or call out as you as you term it call out their gifts or strengths that they may not necessarily recognize in themselves or value that's right my mentor um, would tell me praise costs nothing and enriches all and hmm. uh, it's such an easy thing to do and i mean it, it, he was aggravating to be where we would drive down a toll road and he would have a three-minute conversation with the toll booth attendant about what a wonderful job they were doing <laughs> but but how many people did he help in in their lives along hmm. the way just by having a word of encouragement yeah great i love it all right great place to wrap up on finally who sh who else should i get on this show and why oh uh goodness um Jeremy Knopf is a really great um, guest for you to have. Jeremy is in the sort of strategic PR space, but he's very mission based about uh, if you know you need to develop a message, you need to have something to say in order for people to to listen and benefit from interaction with you. Uh, he's a former Marine. Uh, he has battled and is battling uh, debilitating pain. Uh, and you will never know it because he's just as dedicated of getting a really good story out there. Uh, uh, really a great guy. I do a lot of um, uh, brainstorming with him around that. Um, so I think he's a good one. Tommy is somebody that I always recommend, mm. obviously, for people uh, to speak to as well. But um, uh, lots of good people out there in the world for sure. All right. Well, we'll get an introduction to Jeremy yeah, from for sure. you, and we'll we'll reach out to him to bring him on the show as well. Okay, excellent. I'll definitely make that happen. All right. Thanks a lot, Trey. This has been fun. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your insights with us so generously. And thank Julian for us for making the time available. <laughs> and, <laughs> Jurgen really enjoyed the convo. Yeah. All the best for the future, and let's stay in touch. Yes, definitely so. And uh, uh, stay safe in this crazy world as well. Yep, likewise. I hope you enjoyed that engaging and really insightful conversation with Trey and took something away from his episode. I love his focus on people, evident in all aspects of the three things the CEO focuses on. His hiring process is so comprehensive 
and I imagine leads to committed employees that are a really good cultural fit. I'd love to know what you took away from Trey's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Trey Taylor. That is T-R-E-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Trey Taylor. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Trey, as well as links to the Trinity Blue website, to his social media pages, and to the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. If you like this episode, please do share it. Share it with at least two other people that it might help. You're doing them a favour. Tag me in on that share and I will reach out to you with a special thank you. Trey suggested that we have a conversation with Jeremy Knopf on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So Jeremy, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Trey Taylor. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including Janet Neal of Next Steps Navigation and Dwayne Varan of Media Science. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.